We have uh, just four weeks since I was in the pulpit, but we just finished 1 Thessalonians and are coming to 2 Thessalonians, so if you would open your Bibles there, eh, that would be good. Paul had written the first letter to them, remember, because the Jews had started basically an uproar in the city. They'd had people arrested. They were trying to force him out of town. And he had to leave before he had finished teaching them all of the basics of Christianity to this new church. The unbelieving Jews in that city were quite outraged at him. And as the establishment religion, they felt they had the right to decide what was true and what was not. And they didn't like what Paul had to say about the cross and about salvation and about righteousness. And so they drove him from the city. The persecution that started with his preaching the gospel, with his leading many Jews and even more Greeks to salvation, resulted in his expulsion from the city. We read about that in 1 Thessalonians 3.2. And it brought hard times in persecution on the church there. A young church, not very established in their faith. They didn't have copies of the Bible because, well, Paul was still writing his part. They didn't have the knowledge and the, the, the firm and sure foundation yet. And so the first epistle was laying that foundation, reminding them of the important things and of the hope that we have. And he commends them for their faithfulness and their diligence and their perseverance. Uh, but now, Paul learns, perhaps just weeks or, or even a few months later, after his first letter, he learns that there are new struggles going on. Not just the persecution and the harassment and the trying to override their religion, but deceivers that apparently come in. We read in Second Thessalonians 2, 2, his call to them not to be shaken in mind or alarmed, either by a spirit or a spoken word or a letter seeming to come from us to the effect that the day of the Lord has come. So there were deceivers trying to trick them to destroy the faith and undermine the faith. And so Paul, once again, is writing them a letter to deal with these false beliefs. He's trying to inoculate them from false doctrines. And he's trying to encourage them in the face of their persecutions. You know, if you think about all this suffered, you know, they come to Christ, great joy, we have salvation, we have peace with God. And what happens? They get arrested, they get thrown in jail, they get beaten, they get driven from their home, they lose their job and their place in society. It's terrible. When I was a missionary in Cambodia, I saw that. You know, a believer would come to the Lord and the community would turn on them. The church I worked with out in the countryside, you know, you've seen the pictures of all the people out there planting rice in a big long row. That's the whole village. The village said, we won't do that for you unless you deny Christ and close your church. Here in America, we don't have that level of persecution, but we have troubles. If a church talks about what the Bible says, the whole counsel of God, they will incur the wrath of society around them. If you talk about women or homosexuality or purity or even just the other doctrines of grace, people will alienate you. They'll ostracize you. You'll face troubles. You know, they were 
the Thessalonians were probably very weary, very downtrodden. Here they are, they've, they've come to know Christ and salvation, and yet all they've received has been heartburn and heartache and struggles. Their faith was under assault. Their, wanting, their desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus was being thwarted. And if you think they want you to embrace their false doctrines, they want you to compromise in your faith, they want you to be quiet about the things they don't want to hear. And they call on you to, to give up the, the, the gospel because you know it's unloving. It doesn't bring peace. You want peace? Do this. But Paul, particularly in this first chapter, gives them numerous encouragements to remain steadfast in their faith and their hope. And it's a call to them. They've been doing it, and he's encouraging them to do it more and more. And As we look through this chapter in the next few weeks, I think it's an encouragement to us as well, as we face in America difficult times, in the church difficult times, as even the church has started to say, we want peace. The struggle is too much. And even God's people are weary and downtrodden. But before we look at this chapter, let us read the chapter and then pray. Second Thessalonians chapter 1. I'm going to read the whole chapter because it's one big long encouragement for why we should continue to be faithful. Paul, Savannah, and Timothy to the church of the Thessalonians in God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. We ought always to give thanks to God for you, brothers, as is right, because your faith is growing abundantly, and the love of every one of you for one another is increasing. Therefore, we ourselves boast about you in the churches of God for your steadfastness and faith in all your persecutions and in all the afflictions that you are enduring. This is evidence of the righteous judgment of God that you may be considered worthy of the kingdom of God for which you are also suffering, since indeed God considers it just to repay with affliction those who afflict you and to grant relief to you who are afflicted as well as to us when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, inflicting vengeance upon those who do not know the God, do not know God and those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. They will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might when he comes on that day to be glorified in his saints and to be marveled at among all who have believed. Because our testimony to you was believed, to this end we also pray for you that our God may make you worthy of his calling and may fulfill every resolve for good in every work of faith by his power, so that the name of the Lord Jesus may be glorified in you and you in him, according to the grace of our God and the Lord Jesus Christ. Let us pray. Gracious Heavenly Father, as we look to these encouragements that we find in this first chapter of Second Thessalonians, particularly the first four verses this morning, we pray, Lord, that you would open our hearts to 
consider how we should view the life that we have on this world, how we should rejoice in the things that you have done for us and the things that you have given to us and not be overly concerned and wearied by the trials and the persecutions and the afflictions that we suffer. We ask, Lord, as we go through this material, this cha- this, these verses this morning, that you would lift up our hearts to look unto you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So in verse 2, we find really his first encouragement. Grace and peace to you. It's a reminder to us of what we really need in this life. Grace and peace to you and from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I want to unpack this backwards because I think it helps. The source of this grace and this peace is God. No matter how strong we are, no matter how great we are, no matter how influential we become, no matter rich or powerful a man is, it's never enough to overcome all the trials of this life. We cannot add a minute to our life, not grow one hair back. What happens is beyond our power. When we were going through the fear factor, we looked at that quite a bit. Men trust in themselves, and when they realize they don't have enough strength to overcome the fear of the situation, they stumble and fall. When persecution comes, if we trust in ourselves, we realize we're not able. But we don't need to trust in ourselves. The Thessalonians understood that they couldn't overcome the rage of the apostate Jews. They couldn't overcome the hatred of the unbelieving Gentiles. They couldn't overcome the belligerence of the local government. They were few and their foes were many. They were weak and their adversaries had the might of Rome and the might of Israel behind them. They were simple, yet their adversary, an adversary in Hebrew, by the way, is Satan, Satan. Their adversary is described as the father of lies in John 8:44 the deceiver of the whole world in Revelation 12:9 they were up against something beyond their ability to deal with if the Thessalonians or we were to trust in ourselves or in men or in horses our trust would eventually be betrayed and we would fail because we are nothing but dust we rely on our own strength, it will always prove inadequate. If we rely on our own abilities, one day we are going to lose hope. And that's why it's so important what he says here. We should trust in God. It is God, our Father, and the Lord Jesus Christ, who is the source of the grace and the peace in our life. Remember what Jesus said, Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house there are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you I go there to prepare a place for you? And if I go to prepare a place, I will come again. and will take you to myself, that where I am, you may also be. Our hope in the future, our hope in eternity, is not because we are strong enough to get ourselves there. Not because we are holy enough to earn our way there. But because God has said he will take us with him. Zephaniah says, O Lord, our God is in our midst, a mighty one who will save. 
He will rejoice over you with gladness. He will quiet you by his love. He will exult over you with loud singing, Zephaniah 3.17. We have that hope in his might. He has chosen to show his mercy, to show his love, to show his grace, to give his grace to his people. It is not in our strength alone, but in the strength of God we should trust. Remember what God said to Abraham concerning the promise to raise a child up for him at the age of 100? Is anything too hard for the Lord? Genesis 18:14. Whatever situation we face in this life, whatever trials we have, whatever persecutions, whatever health issues, even though it seems hopeless to us, nothing is too hard for the Lord. Remember what the angel said to Mary, nothing is impossible with God. He can do it. He can preserve us to the bitter end. He can give us relief when we need it. He can give us courage and strength when we have to have it. He has the power. Jeremiah prayed, O Lord God, it is you who have made the heavens and the earth by your great power and by your outstretched arm. Nothing is too hard for you. Jeremiah 32:17. God made the heavens, the earth, and everything in them. He sustains them by the might of his power. Certainly, he can do whatever he sets his mind to do. Whatever he promises will come to pass. While men in our power might impress us, it is God who works all things according to the counsel of his will. Ephesians 1.11 The enemies in Thessalonica had a will. They had a desire. End the church. End the Christians. Turn people back to paganism. Turn people to unbelief, to hatred for the true God. But it is God who would work out his will according to the counsel of his own keeping. Now you might be saying, how does this help? You might ask, how does this encourage us to remain steadfast in faith and hope? Well, think about it. His purpose, his plans will be accomplished. How does that help? When the enemy wants to destroy us, when the godless want to overwhelm us, when they want to turn us from the true living God to the worthless things of men, when they try to corrupt all that's good, when they declare up is down and down is out, down is up and you're a hate speaker if you say otherwise he is still the one who is in charge and no matter what they do to us we know that for those who love God all things will work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose for those whom he foreknew he predestined to be conformed to the image of his son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers And those whom he predestined, he called. And those whom he called, he justified. And those whom he justified, he glorified. What shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? Romans 8, 28 to 31. We can have assurance in God's plan. He started it. He began that work in us. And he has promised that it will work out all the way to the end. And no matter what they may do to us in this life, no matter what may happen, whether we have cancer or Parkinson's or other things, God can work it out. God will work it out. God has promised to work it out for our good. We need not be downtrodden. We need not grow overly weary 
knowing that there is good coming to us from it. That's why Paul can say, I am sure that he who began the good work in us will bring it through to the day of completion, Philippians 1.6. God isn't going to quit. God said, I'm going to do this, and it will be done. God has made his promises to us. We just need to wait. We need to be patient. We need to endure. We need, as he mentions in verse 4, to have that steadfastness in our faith. Because Jesus will return. As we saw in 1 Thessalonians, we're seeing again here in 2 Thessalonians, he will return and he will judge the world and he will reward his people. He will judge the quick and the dead and there will be peace. That is what Paul has asked for us here. Grace and peace to you from God. Peace is something we desire. We are weary. We are downtrodden. We are done. There are days when we just say, I want to be retired from now on and live the comfortable life. I'm done. There are times when we want the battle to be over with sin. There are times when we want the battle with sinners to be over. Peace here, though, is not necessarily that kind of peace. It's not peace with the world. Remember what John said? We know that we are from God and the world lies in the power of the evil one. 1 John 5.19 James says, You adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity to God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. James 4.4 Peace with this world is something we cannot really achieve. We can't have peace with those who are waging a war against God. Peace with those who are waging a war against us. That's not the peace he's calling for here. We can't have peace with that worldling until the worldling becomes a child of God. Now you might say surely that it is just our belligerence that makes the world angry with us. If we're really speaking the truth in love, Ephesians 4.15, then the peace we'll have peace with the world. Well, certainly our sin gets in the way of the gospel. We were just talking about that in Bodhi's book that we're reading earlier this morning. Our sin causes trouble. Our sin makes the gospel unattractive. Our belligerence, our anger, our corruption can get in the way, certainly. Peter says that it is better... What credit is to you if you sin and are beaten for it and endure? But if you suffer for doing good and endure, it is gracious in the sight of God, 1 Peter 2.20. It is real that our sin sometimes is the cause of that problem. But I want to challenge that basic presupposition that there's some way to speak the truth in love that the godless, the God-hating, will be happy with God's word. I just don't think that's possible. They want to stop it from being proclaimed. Paul mentions that in his first letter to the Thessalonians, uh, chapter 2, verse 14 to 16. He says, For you brothers became imitators of the churches of God in Christ Jesus that are in Judah. You suffered the same thing from your own countrymen as they did from the Jews who killed the Lord Jesus and the prophets and drove us out and displeased God and deposed all mankind 
How? By hindering us from speaking to the Gentiles that they might be saved. So as to always store up the full measure of their sins, but wrath has come upon them at last. Persecution that Paul suffers, that the Thessalonians are facing, they're facing because the gospel is an offense to the godless. They hate what God has done. They hate what God has called them to do and how God has called them to life. Because of the righteousness found in the gospel, they are angry. That's why Jesus says in the Beatitudes, Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven, Matthew 5.10. The godless won't hear the truth. They'll hear people who speak contrary to the truth and against the truth. Remember, we talked about that also in 1 John chapter 4, 5, and 6. Chapter 4, verse 5 and 6. He said, they are from the world. Therefore, they speak as the world. He's talking about the false teachers. And the world listens to them. We are from God. Whoever knows God listens to us. And whoever is not from God does not listen to us. By this, you know the spirit of truth and the spirit of error. John is making the point, they won't listen to the truth. They hate it. They will listen to the lies, to the corruption. And it's all around us in the church today. It's all around us in society today. It's in the world today, just as it has been from the beginning. Since man chose to rebel against God and depart from him in the Garden of Eden, this has been a great problem. They won't hear the truth. The world will not listen to the wisdom of God. They will only listen to the worldly, the unbelieving, the enemies of the cross. Paul says of the gospel, we impart this word not in truth by human, taught by human wisdom, but taught by the spirit, interpreting spiritual truths to those who are spiritual. The natural person does not accept the things of the spirit of God for they are folly to him. And he's not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. 1 Corinthians 2, 13 and 14. They don't understand the truth of the Bible. They can't understand it. Which is why Jesus says, if the world hates you, know that it hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Remember the word I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will persecute you. If they kept my word, they will keep yours. But all these things they do on account of my name, because they did not know him who sent me. Because they do not know God, they will hate the children of God. We are the enemy, and they know it. They understand it. When they hear of salvation, and they know we have it and they don't, and they don't want it, it makes them bitter, it makes them angry, it makes them hate. Peace with the world, well, it seems like a desirable thing. We would certainly love to have peace, be able to share the gospel openly, have it loved by all. It's just something that will not happen because the unconverted will not respect or honor or tolerate this. Paul isn't meaning here the peace with the world. He isn't meaning peace from persecution. He isn't even meaning a lull in the persecution. He doesn't mean that we should stoically accept our troubles and trials. 
In fact, we are to receive our trials with joy. Jesus said, Blessed are those who who are persecuted for righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. I just read that, but continue on. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. That's what was happening to the Thessalonians. That's what happens in our world today. He says, Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Matthew 5, 10 through 12. Again, note, this is righteousness sake. It is on account of Christ. It is not on account of our obnoxiousness. It's not on account of our belligerence or our sin. For that, persecution would be justice. It's on account of the truth of God. It's on account of the name of Christ and on account of the gospel. The peace Paul is speaking about here comes from our peace with God. Peace that comes through knowing and believing God. He says in Romans 5, the first verses, Since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Our justification, our, all of our sins being nailed on the cross, paid in full by Christ, brings us peace with God. He has no longer any need to have wrath against us because our sins are paid in full. We have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through him we have obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand and we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. Not only that, we rejoice in our sufferings. All the persecutions, all the trials, all the sickness, all the things that make our life difficult. He says we rejoice in our sufferings. Why? Knowing that suffering produces endurance. Endurance produces character. Character produces hope. And hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. Romans 5, the first five verses. We have peace with God because the sin that separated us from God has been paid in full in Christ. So we don't need to be disheartened by the sufferings and the persecutions that all Christians faith. And yes, we all face them. Paul says, indeed, all who want to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted, 2 Timothy 3.12. Rather, as Jesus called us to rejoice and put our hope in God, and that we have true peace, that peace cannot be shaken by what goes on in the world, cannot be shaken by our life, by the struggles of the flesh, by the wiles of the devils, by all that the world may do to us. Not by sickness, not by poverty, not by anything. We have peace of conscience knowing that we've been cleansed of our sins by the blood of Christ. We have peace about the future because we know what Paul said, the promises of God. I am sure that neither life nor death, angels nor rulers, things present nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all of creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus. Romans 8, 38 and 39. That is peace. That is the peace he is wishing upon them, that they understand they stand with God. That God has taken them as his children. That God will care for them. That God will work all things out to their good in the end. That they need not 
grow weary and give up. They need not faint because God is with them and God has given them graciously his support as an all-loving father. Of course, he also asks for grace from God. Grace here is an unmerited gift. Speaking of the remnant saved by in Elijah's day, Paul says, so too, at the present time, there is a remnant chosen by grace. If it is by grace, it is no longer on the basis of works. Otherwise, grace would no longer be grace. Romans 11, 5 and 6. Understand, grace is a gift that we didn't earn. It isn't done because God said, you're working hard and I'm going to support you. It was given to us because he chose in his eternal purpose and in his eternal plan to give a gift to us who were unworthy. I've shared before how I was a bitter atheist and a persecutor of Christians in my early working years. I did not earn the grace of salvation. I did not earn a change of heart that caused me to go to church after church after church, not hearing the gospel, until finally I entered a church that shared the gospel and was saved. It was not something I earned, and it is not something I keep by my own power and my own strength. By grace was I saved. By grace I am sustained. I was dead in my trespasses and sins. Dead man can do nothing for himself. Says you, Paul says, you were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you once walked following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the year, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. We were servants of the devil, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind. We were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. But... God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved, and raises us up with him, and seated us in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not of your own doing. It is the gift of God, not the result of works, so that no one may boast. We are his workmanship, meaning that he is the one who changed our hearts. He is the one who made us holy. We are his work. This is created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Ephesians 2, 1 through 10. What a joyful thing to read. It was not because of my goodness, not because of my work that I was saved. And it is not because of my strength that I will reach heaven. Because if it was according to my strength, I would be afraid. I would be very afraid. But I know that what he has promised he will do, that he is faithful and just if my sins have been cleansed by the blood of Christ, certainly he will take it all the way and bring me to him. (coughs) 
It's pretty clear, it's pretty straightforward in the scripture that our hope is in the power of God, not in the power of ourselves. The grace of salvation, however, had already been attained by them. He's talking to his brothers in Thessalonica. And so that's not what he's specifically referring to, but he's calling it to remembrance to them. You can have hope, you can have courage, you can endure all things because God has done this for you. And it doesn't require your strength to overcome the Jews and overcome the Gentiles and overcome the devil. It is required of God's love. And that's it. And so he has given you grace and he will give you more grace. And what good work he has begun in you, he will bring to completion in the day of Christ Jesus. That is a great hope for the Christian life. We have started down that path we will make it to the end because he is always with us. We saw in First Thessalonians, the very end of the chapter, a little benediction. He says, now may the grace or may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely. May your whole spirit and soul and body be kept blameless at the coming of the Lord. He who calls you is faithful. He will surely do it. That is certainly a great encouragement to the downtrodden, great encouragement to those who are facing persecution or sickness or troubles and trials. He will present us blameless. He is faithful. He will do it. This is an encouragement to our sanctification. The second encouragement he gives us in this short passage we're looking at today is their growth in faith and love. A living faith is an active faith. It is a growing faith. When John the Baptist first started preaching, he said to the crowds that came out to be baptized by him, you brood of vipers. Oh, very seeker friendly. (laughs) You brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Bear fruits in keeping with repentance. And do not say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. For I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. Even now the axe is laid at the root of the trees. Every tree that therefore does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown in the fire. Luke 3, 7 through 9. Jesus identified himself as the true vine and his father is the vine dresser. He said, every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes that it may bear more fruit. If you're familiar with the idea, the old wood needs to be cut out. I like to think of it when I think of that passage, that the the things in my life that don't further my walk with God, he snips off. The things I love, the sins I love, the worldliness that's in me. But note that he wants more fruit, not just a fruit, but a continuous bringing of fruit after fruit after fruit. Paul in his ministry said when he was imprisoned and testifying about what he had done, he said, I declared to those in Damascus and in Jerusalem and throughout the region of Judea and even to the Gentiles (coughs) that they should repent, turn to God performing deeds in keeping with their repentance. 
pretty straightforward and simple. If you have repented and turned to God, then your deeds will be new and different, and you'll be producing good fruit, and you should be doing that. But he continues, for this reason, the Jews seized me in the temple and tried to kill me. Acts 26, 20 and 21. You know, that message of repent, turn to God and do what's right was the reason for being arrested and the reason they were trying to murder him. (coughs) Uh, Forgive me, I had COVID a few weeks ago. I tested negative. I'm clean and not contagious, but the cough hasn't recovered yet. So that message of repenting and turning to God, living a new life of obedience to God, automatically was leading to persecution. Persecution of Paul and persecution of the Thessalonians. That's the point of faith. Faith that results in a new life will always be followed by bearing fruit. The two are inseparable. If the fruit's not there, then the new life really isn't there. Which is to say the person without good fruit is a person really without faith, without saving faith. In the same way, when we can see the fruit, we can have that hope that we truly have saving faith in Christ Jesus. That faith and that work go together, and that is the encouragement he is giving them. We see your faith. We see your good works. We see them growing. Take encouragement in that. It is not a hopeless battle you are fighting. Victory is assured in the end. For faith to be alive, as I said, it must be growing. And if not just growing, but in their case, it was growing abundantly. We all know how hard that is. And he ties it to love. Faith and love go hand in hand. If we have faith in God and we love God, we will love those who are being transformed into the image of God because in them we see God. We see his image in their transformation, in their new life. And we will love them. But let me ask you, how easy is it to love our brother? We won't go there. We went there when we went through John's epistles. But think about that. We don't know how hard it is to love one another. We spoke about that in depth. It's wonderful and an encouragement to them that their love is clearly growing. Look at how you treat each other. Look at how you pray for each other. Look at how you help each other. Do you not see your love is growing? That should give you the encouragement that the Spirit is in you. That is the work of the Spirit in your life. You're bearing fruit. Peter wrote that God's divine power is granted to us for all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and excellence, by which he has granted to us his precious and very great promises, so that through them you may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped from the corruption that is in the world due to sinful desire. For this reason, make every effort to supplement your faith, to add to your faith virtue, and virtue knowledge, And knowledge, self-control, and self-control, steadfastness, and steadfastness, godliness. And godliness, brotherly love, and brotherly love with 
love, agape. For if these qualities are yours and are increasing, they keep you from being ineffective and unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. I love that knowledge is brought out repeatedly by Peter. Paul says that the Jews were zealous, but not according to knowledge, not according to the true knowledge of God of the Bible. That knowledge is so important, and we are to add to our faith virtue and virtue knowledge, because knowledge is really foundational in doing what is right. Peter goes on to say, whoever lacks these qualities is so nearsighted that he is blind and has forgotten that he is cleansed from his former sins. Therefore, brothers, be all the more diligent to confirm your calling and election. For if you practice these qualities, you will never fall. For in this way, there will be richly provided for you an entrance into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. How do we, according to Peter, confirm our calling and our election? How do we confirm our salvation? Well, because we have faith and we are adding these things to our faith and we are growing in our knowledge, our understanding, our behavior, and ultimately in our love for one another. And that confirms in us our place with God. And so that is the encouragement he is driving at here. This is the calling of the Christian life. This is what God wants from us, to be ever growing and increasing in our faith. And our faith is growing by demonstrating fruit. And those fruits are the fruits of the Christian life. Paul goes on in the next, or Peter rather, goes on in the next verse to say, Therefore I intend always to remind you of these qualities, though you know them and are established in the truth that you have. It's important. Well, Peter's not going to say it once and be done. Okay, we've been there, done that, we're all finished. No, it's something he's going to go on and on again. And if you read the context there in Second Peter, Peter is expecting to be executed soon. This is his final message. This is the thing he's most serious, most important thing. That they understand that they need to be growing in these qualities. Paul tells us to put off the old self, which belongs to the former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires, and to be renewed in the spirit of your minds and put on the new self created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness, Ephesians 4, 22 through 24. Note what he says, be renewed. It's in the present tense. It's a continuous process of renewal. Continuous and I think... Most pastors would say gradual process. It's not a, it's a, hopefully we're getting better. We stumble, we fall, we improve, we grow. It's an ongoing process is the point of this transformation into the image of God. And note the image of God here is not idolatrous. It's true knowledge and righteousness and holiness. So we can take encouragement and have hope in seeing our faith and our love are growing. And that's our sanctification, that our sanctification is ongoing and increasing as we go. And that seeing that is what drove Paul, we see in that verse, to praise God. Now Paul uses a word here 
we ought always to give thanks for you. The ought there is the same word he uses for the, the obligation, the debt, that ongoing debt he has to praise God, in this case for them. Having seen it, it is necessary for him to praise God for it. And more than that, he boasts about it to the other churches. See what they have done. They are facing persecution. They are facing trials. They are facing arrest. They've had to post bonds that they won't rebel. And you know, so their money is being held by the government. They've suffered great troubles. And yet their faith and their love are clearly growing for one another and for God. They're not giving up. They're not quitting. Look at that. Be amazed and give God the glory and give God the praise. The faith and brotherly love was proof of a new heart and a new life in Christ, a sign of that ongoing transformation that Paul likes to talk about in the believer's life. It's a sign of the grace of God in their life. When we see that growth, we really should have that great hope that great joy that surely God will finish that work. Brings us then to the third encouragement Paul gives in our little passage today. And that encouragement can be gained from their steadfastness. They have persecutions, they have afflictions, and yet in their faith they have remained steadfast. Now, the Greek word there, according to my dictionary, is used in the New Testament as a characteristic of a man who has not swerved from his deliberate purpose, from his loyalty to the faith, from his piety. Even in the greatest of trials and sufferings, the man remains the same. That is the idea of this steadfastness that he speaks of in verse 4. There's a price to be paid for being a true Christian. A price that can't be avoided. Remember what Jesus had to say? He said of himself, foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. Why? Well, he was driven from town to town. They tried to kill him everywhere he went. They tried to arrest him for what he said, for what he preached, for calling them on their sin, for calling them to holiness. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows, acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised, and we esteemed him not. Isaiah 53.3 And it wasn't just his cross to bear. He said, whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. For which of you desiring to build a tower does not first sit down and count the cost? whether he has enough to complete it. Otherwise, when he has laid the foundation and is not able to finish, all will see him and begin to mock him, saying, (coughs) (coughs) This man began to build what was that? (coughs) (coughs) Excuse me. This man began to build and was not able... To finish. But what king going out to encounter another king in war does not sit down first and deliberate whether he is able with 10,000 to meet him who comes at him with 20,000? And if not, while the other is yet far away, 
He will send a delegation and ask for terms of peace. So therefore, any of you who does not renounce all that he has cannot be my disciple. There's that great cost, that price to pay to be a disciple. If you can't pay it, if you won't pay it, if you don't want to pay it, how can you actually be his disciple? He's warned us ahead of time. He's sending us out like sheep amongst wolves. It says, be wise as servant, but innocent as doves. Beware of men, for they will deliver you over to the courts and flog you in the synagogues. You will be dragged before governors and kings for my sake to bear witness before them and the Gentiles. When they deliver you over, do not be anxious what you are to speak or what you are to say. What you are to say will be given you in that hour. For it is not you who speak, but the spirit of your father who speaks through you. I shared once about how in Cambodia, a man kept coming and disrupting our service in the countryside. He always had an accusation of what evils Christians do and believe. And every time, even with my terrible memory, I was able to immediately open to a Bible passage and have him read in his own language in the Bible the refutation of his lies. The Lord is with us and can open our hearts and our minds that we can remember and understand and give an answer. It says, Brother will deliver brother over to death and father his child. Children will rise against parents and have them put to death. You will be hated by all for my name's sake. Here's the important part. But the one who endures to the end will be saved. When they persecute you in one town, flee to the next. For truly, I say to you, you will not have gone through the towns of Israel before the Son of Man comes. A disciple is not above his teacher or servant above his master. It is enough that the disciple be like his teacher and the servant be like his master. If they have called the master of the house Beelzebub, how much more will they malign those of his household? Matthew 10, 16 through 25. It may seem like an odd comfort to say the one who is patient and endures to the end has hope because, well, we don't get to the end and we're not always confident we can make it to the end. How is that a matter of hope? We'll never be able to check it off as it's done. Did that, so I'm good. However, I think that thought really falls short of the encouragement he's trying to offer us. Day by day we face trials. With every trial that's behind us, we see God's grace, we see God's power, we, we see our new heart, our new life. And when we overcome it, when we stumble and fall, we see what we need to work on. But day by day it grows. And day by day, at least in this life, we're moving in the right direction. And that's what we know. And that's what should give us our hope. We don't fully reach it. We don't become perfect in this life. Remember what we read from Paul? He said, it's not as if I have already obtained all this or am already perfect. But I press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus has made me his own. Brothers, I do not consider that I have made it my own. But one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind 
and straining towards what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward calling in Christ Jesus. Let those who are mature think this way. And if in anything you think otherwise, God will reveal that also to you. Only let us hold true to what we have already obtained. Brothers, join in imitating me and keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example you have in us. For many of whom I have often told you and now tell you even with tears, walk as enemies of the cross. Their end is destruction, their God, their belly, their glory is their shame. Their minds set on earthly things. But our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. You know, the encouragement comes not in achieving, but in seeing the walk, seeing the growth, seeing the love in our hearts for our brothers and sisters in Christ, seeing our love for God, seeing our faith, being able to maintain it through the different trials. With each trial, that's why we count the trials a joy. With each trial, we see ourselves becoming closer and closer to the goal of being Christ-like in our life and in our walk. So Paul here, just in the very beginning, in his thanksgivings and his greetings, has given three great things to help us hope in the future, to help us endure our trials, our steadfastness, shows that we are walking down that path. The grace and the peace of God are ours. The love and faith that we have and grow tells us that we are with him and gives us his glory and his strength. Let us pray. Gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you, Lord, that though we are struggling at times, though we are hard-pressed, and oppressed, that indeed we have you with us and your grace with us, and that you have given us your peace. Peace, not in never suffering, but peace in knowing that the end of all that we suffer will be our good and your glory, and that we have to look forward to your kingdom and your righteousness in an eternity with you. And so we pray, Lord, that you would encourage our hearts, strengthen our weak knees, give us grace, that we might more and more walk in faith. And as your son has said, if you love me, keep my commandments. We might day by day be more diligent to keep your commandments. We ask, Lord, for your mercies in Jesus' name. Amen. Our catechism reading is number 26 from the Heidelberg Catechism. It's on the inside cover of the bulletin. Please respond with the answer. 28, Heidelberg Catechism number 28. Sorry, I misread. The next one. So Heidelberg Catechism, question 28. What does it benefit us to know that God has created all things and still upholds him by his providence?
together. We can be patient in adversity, thankful in prosperity, and with a view to the future, we can have a firm confidence in our faithful God and Father, that no creature shall separate us from his love, and all creatures are so completely in his hand that without his will they can do his move.